Good morning, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues and friends. I can see on the screen what I'm going to say, but I don't think you can yet. Let's just see. Help is coming. Here we are. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so good morning again, and thank you all for the welcome. Uh, it's my return to Iraq after 35 years. I was going to be a student of the archaeology of Iraq and Iran, but it was prevented by a war zone. Um, and I'm very pleased to be back here. Um, and uh, Dr. Malawat said that we are also in a war zone, but it's good that we were allowed permission to come and to be here. So although I'm keeping you from your coffee, uh, for the next 30 minutes, I will give an overview of our project. Um, and you've heard the words Amina from a few people this morning already, but it, it is simply endangered archaeology in the Middle East and North Africa. And when somebody said, what are you going to call the project? We said, let's just call it Amina. Um, we've been here for a few days training, and we've been given a wonderful welcome, um, both within the, the university here uh, the American University, but also the University of Sulaymaniyah, and I'm very grateful to all those people, uh, staff, uh, but also the students, because the students thought they were coming to be trained. Uh, they were, but they also had to do simultaneous translation themselves during the courses. So I'm very grateful for that. Also grateful for yesterday when we had a trip to Erbil, and it was a real privilege to be able to stand on the citadel at, at Erbil which is allegedly the longest continuously occupied place on earth. And I say allegedly because I'm sure there are others who claim it, but let's just for today believe that it is Erbil. Um, my talk is based on two things. One is a question to keep in your mind uh, during the course of today and tomorrow, which is, uh, given our project and what we're doing, uh, is it of any use to you? So you can ask me the question or answer that question for me when you've heard what I've presented. But also the point that's just been made um, by Dr. Kais, which is that the, we believe that the cultural heritage is important. And it, in a way, it doesn't matter whose cultural heritage it is, but the cultural heritage is important. We also believe, too, and want to make the point that the crisis that's, that's engulfing the Middle East particularly is a humanitarian crisis, and this is just an example um, of a demonstration of that through the Chinese, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei of the life vests from, from Lesbos. And it requires, as, as, has, as has already been said, an international response. But we, don't, we mustn't forget that this is a humanitarian crisis, but actually the, the crisis in terms of cultural identity is interlinked with the, the modern-day humanitarian crisis. So to our project, uh, we describe it as a voyage of discovery and documentation of damage and destruction. But it is important to remember that it is a voyage of discovery. Many people think that archaeologists have already found all the archaeological sites there are to be found. But unfortunately, that is not true. And many of them are under threat. Our project is very ambitious. It covers everywhere from Mauritania to Iran. Some people say, well, isn't the Sudan in North Africa? And the answer is yes, but it's not in our project. It's just too big. Um, others have said, why aren't you doing Afghanistan? And we say, well, the region we've got is already big enough. There is a project looking at Afghanistan from the Chicago Oriental Institute. And an, an, an important point underpinning our project is that it is a collaborative project, we don't want to duplicate 
anything that's being done by anybody else. Uh, so I've themed it in terms of the need and the loss and the challenge, and then we'll come to the response and what we're doing about it. And before I do that, I'll take you back to um, a small, relatively unimportant site in England called Stonehenge, uh, a World Heritage Site. But this is what it looked like in 1906. And the reason for putting this slide on is to emphasize the point that what we do in the Endangered Archaeology Project is look at archaeological sites that have been viewed from above. And it doesn't matter whether it's from a balloon, a drone, an airplane, or a satellite. Um, the important point is we're not necessarily looking at them on the ground because we don't have time. We're hoping that others will use our information uh, to, to look at those sites on the ground. And I can't, haven't time to go into the detail of what's on that photograph, but it's a, probably the most important photograph ever taken of an archaeological site because it's the first. And that was taken from an army balloon in 1906. And you can see that Stonehenge was in a mess. And it makes the point that all archaeological sites change, that we as archaeologists should really monitor the condition of sites in the hope that we can improve their condition. And if ever you are able to visit Stonehenge and visit the United Kingdom, you will see that it's different today than it was in 1906. And it also makes the point that archaeology and cultural heritage management takes a very long time. It can't be done overnight. I also want to make the point that endangered archaeology is not the preserve of the Middle East and North Africa. We have been destroying our sites in Britain and Europe for over 100 years, and we've done a very good job of it. One of the differences is that agricultural intensification is probably the most damaging agent of destruction. But in Britain and Europe, agricultural intensification has tended to bury the sites, and we can see them from the air. So you can see crop marks, oh, I might have a pointer, um, crop marks here, which are the buried sites, and the only way you can view them is from above. In the Middle East and North Africa, and this is uh, an example from Jordan, the sites are more upstanding. So when destruction happens, as here with a bulldozer near the Azraq bypass in Jordan, the destruction is total. They don't get buried, they are completely destroyed. I'll come on to the work we've done in Jordan later, but the next two slides show the changes it just in the space of, of three years in an ancient, ancient mining site in Egypt. Um, and what you're looking at here are the ancient remains of the infrastructure of mining sites. Uh, these, are, these probably are 1,000, 2,000 year, years old. And this is an area where they were extracting precious metals. But once law and order had broken down, you could see that in the space of three years, this is 2013, using the satellite imagery alone, people have gone in on an industrial scale to extract the mining. And if I just go back a slide, you can see the change just in three years. That's uncontrolled development on a massive scale. Now, archaeologists can never protect everything, but we do need to know what has been destroyed. Because if we don't know, we cannot understand the great wealth and the great range of what was there before. 
and therefore our understanding of the past is severely limited. Uh, another example, uh, again from Jordan, and to remind me to uh, mention the fact that we use historical photographs as well. This is a photograph taken uh, by the RAF in the 1930s um, with Sir Oral Stein as the actual photographer, but flying in RAF things, of the ancient city of Jurash. Many of you may have visited it, but you can see the outline of the city walls here, the main cardo here, um, and this is what it looked like in 1939. And although a protected site and a very, very important site, this is what it looks like today using satellite imagery. And you can see the buildup of the town here and here. And as a result of that, UNESCO said that the uncontrolled development around here means that this could never be a World Heritage Site. And yet, when you visit it, if you have, and, uh, and if you, even if you haven't, you should visit it, it is a wonderful place, a wonderful setting. Um, but it's important that we can record what archaeology was there because this is where the farms were, this is where the burials were from, we know from the Hellenistic period and onwards because a site isn't just what's defined by its walls, it's also what happens in its hinterland. Other examples of lost, uh, these are the kite sites, haven't time to go into what the kite sites are, but very quickly they are hunting sites from the 5th to 7th millennium BC, uh, and random bulldozing that seems to have no purpose, uh, maybe here building a road possibly, but what on earth is the bulldozer driver doing here? We have absolutely no idea. The only way you can see this is from the air, and it's destroying sites. Very few of these, there are thousands of these sites stretching from Kazakhstan all the way down to Yemen. Uh, are being damaged and destroyed. Only about two have ever had any excavation on them whatsoever. Here's an example in Saudi Arabia. Uh, again, you can see the kite site here very faintly from satellite imagery. And here we think this is a survey for oil and gas on a systematic grid system. And again, what a wonderful opportunity had we known about this in advance for archaeologists to be able to have looked at this site and being able to do some excavation to find out a bit more about it. What date is it? Who was using it? Why were they using it? Um, and if you're interested in kites, there is an iBook available uh, on the internet called Kites in Arabia by David Kennedy, Rebecca Manson, Paul Houghton, uh, looking at the sites and their distribution. Uh, so I recommend that for you, as I haven't got time to go into it in immense detail. I wanted just to show a few examples from Iraq for a number of reasons. Uh, but this is Tal Ubaid, a really important site, to make a couple of points, which is it's not only the damage and destruction that's done, but also the resilience of archaeology. Tell sites are remarkably resilient. And these, although this is destruction, these are um, uh, tank emplacements for, from, from the 1980s in the Iran-Iraq war, um, but also that's an opportunity to be able to do some excavation without uh, archaeologists doing any more damage. So although there is a crisis in terms of the cultural heritage, it does also provide opportunities as well. And I just put this slide on as it's some of the work we've done in our project, which is looking at the distribution of sites in Iraq uh, using both our methodology, which is the interpretation of satellite imagery and creating a database, but also looking at previous surveys. And all the, the red pins that you see on here those are all the sites that have had some looting 
on them since about 2000. So being able to, to find a record of how many sites have been damaged by looting, you can then begin to prioritize as to which sites you might then wish to investigate or do more, do more work on. And uh, there's an example of the looting here that you can see. The only positive I can get from looking at the looted sites is that, especially on the tell sites, they don't go all the way down to the bottom. They're relatively surface. Other, other, other damage and destruction is total. Whereas on these sites, um, again, it may be possible to do some investigation to find out more about them. And I'll come back to looting later. Um, and I just wanted to, to show this picture uh, of Nimrud in Iraq, really just to make the point that even the most important sites are under threat, as we've heard uh, through so-called Daesh. We've also worked in Libya, in North Africa, um, uh, again, pr providing, this is what the project does, uh, provides information from a whole variety of sources to map uh, what was a medieval walled town. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi decided that he didn't want this, although Gaddafi was interested in the heritage, uh, he didn't, wasn't interested in this heritage, so it was cleared away to try and uh, regenerate it and make it a better place. Uh, unfortunately, then Gaddafi was uh, removed from power and nothing now has happened. So an ancient city has been completely destroyed for no reason at all. And so the outline uh, of the city there is still just about visible in the roads, but the whole of this medieval city completely destroyed. And then a final example under the need and loss is uh, these, is this, the Taiz, the citadel in, uh, Taiz is the second largest city in Yemen. Uh, here it is in 2003, and they decided that they wanted to improve it and restore it to make it a place that people could visit, a cultural attraction. Um, and it's very important that we, we recognize the significance of being able to visit sites and make, make, you know, we say the cultural heritage is important, but why is it important? Uh, people want to visit it and enjoy it. So full restoration in 2014, but then because of the conflict there, this has been bombed at least five times. Uh, all that good work completely destroyed in a few moments of aerial bombardment. So what are we doing about it? I've already mentioned that it's an international co co cooperation and collaboration. There's a few of the people uh, and things involved, but you know, European teams, as we've heard, uh, would take me more than five minutes to list them all. So we're working together. Um, and there's been a long background of working in aerial archaeology in Europe. That's been my background. At the end of the Cold War, we were able to work in the former Eastern Bloc and do training courses in a whole variety of places. Uh, we've also been working in Jordan uh, using aerial archaeology. And we know it works because of previous work like this by Antoine Poidabar, uh, La Trace de Rome. Poidabar was either an engineer or a Jesuit priest um, or an archaeologist or a spy. Take your pick. It was one of the many. Uh, whatever he was, he took some stunning aerial photographs. These are the, 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 in the shadow here uh, in 1934, the tomb towers uh, at Palmyra, some of which have now been destroyed. And that's what makes these historic air photographs and also the historic satellite imagery so important because it, often they are the only record, obviously not in this case in Palmyra, but in some cases they're the only record of any archaeological site. So that's why we think what we're doing is very important. Another example here from Iran, uh, if you haven't seen this book by Eric Schmidt, Flights Over Ancient Cities of Iran by the Chicago Oriental Institute, 
They were excavating in Persepolis in the 1930s. They wanted to use an aircraft as a taxi to take them from uh, Tehran down to Persepolis. But luckily, Eric Schmidt's wife said, no, no, you must do aerial archaeology. It's far more important than just flying to the excavation. Um, I would say that aerial archaeology is far more important than any excavation. Um, but then not everybody agrees with me on that one. Um, and there's an, uh, a view of Persepolis. And it was only when Eric Schmidt saw some of the photographs, he was able to realize that their excavation strategy could be developed by looking at the site in a wider context. And he says in the book that by having the aerial photographs that he'd taken, he was able to change the strategy in terms of how they would excavate. Um, but that's another long story. And then we were lucky. Uh, from 1997 onwards uh, through the inspiration of David Kennedy, that's David there, and myself in a helicopter, to be able to fly in Jordan. It was supposed to be a short project to produce a book, um, and we were probably going to finish in 2000 or 2001, but we're still flying in Jordan 16, 20 years later, uh, and if you go to this website, apami.org, there are over 100,000 photographs of Jordan from the air, and uh, we did publish the book in 2004, Ancient Jordan from the Air. It's always been our aim and, and dream that we might be able to do a similar work in other countries in the Middle East and North Africa. As yet, it's not been possible, um, but we couldn't do this work without the cooperation of the Royal Jordanian Air Force and a number of funders. Um, and, and it is, a, even in Jordan, when we've been flying for 20 years, we find sites that have never been seen before uh, this is a quarry of Roman columns here, uh, all been extracted from the limestone. And we found this almost by accident. It's only eight miles from the center of a man. Um, it was clearly where the, the columns to build Roman and man were being built. And it looks, when you visit it on the ground as we did, as if they, the people who were quarrying those stones just walked away at the end of the Roman Empire. They knew they weren't going to get paid, so they thought, that's it, we're walking off. Nobody seems to have visited since. The reason it's important is that that's where the site is. All around it, massive quarrying, getting closer and closer, and then this industrial complex also getting closer and closer. So we need to make sure that that site is protected. So, oh, interesting. So what are we doing about it? Uh, this is just to remind me that it is, this, this is, now the next section is just about our project. Uh, and that sums it up. Creating a baseline data for sites and landscapes in 20 countries and building on existing knowledge. And I often to re refer to it as dots on maps. So that's just a view of our, our office in Oxford and the team there. Um, it's dots on maps, so it's making the first, often the first ever record of some of the sites. Many of the sites are known, but we estimate that 75% of all the sites that we record have never been recorded before. And therefore, we think that's an important contribution, not only for cultural heritage management, but a contribution for research and knowledge. Um, we're using uh, an Arches platform for the database. There isn't time to go into it in detail, but those of, for those of you who know Mega Jordan, uh, this here, it's a similar uh, representation, either a dot on a map or a polygon, and then you're able to see the brief record here, and then with further access, you would get even more records. Uh, in, since the project started, as Andrea said earlier on, project started in January 2015, 
very important that I mention our funder, uh, the Arcadia Foundation. They asked us, you can't apply to Arcadia, they asked us to do the project. Um, and it's based in the universities of Oxford, as you can see here, and Leicester. And as of now, I need to change these slides, we're also uh, allied with the University of Durham, who are working on Syria. But this is the, not the, yeah, the numbers and distribution of the sites that we've looked at already. Um, in the database, over 100,000 sites recorded uh, since we began using standardized terminology uh, and again, as I showed in Mega Jordan, this is now our database, but it shows the location and extent. And then for every, each one of the fields, there is a standard terminology. Because if you ask three archaeologists for an interpretation of an archaeological site, you'll probably get four interpretations. So it's very, very important that we have standard terminology for all the records that are created. We have a, a staff of, of 10 to 15 people who are making records. We're hoping, as a result of uh, things like the training course that we've done, that other people, so students sitting in the front, in the middle row at the back there, um, from the University of Sulaymaniyah and also from the American University, will have access to this database and will able to be able to add records, and the most importantly, add records about the condition of those sites. So we're hoping to be able to pass that knowledge on. Having got the records and found the sites, what do we need to do? Clearly, we've got to monitor and try and protect them. Now, in Britain, we have spent 100 years working on how you can monitor and protect sites. And I just showed this is one example of how difficult it can be. Uh, under British legislation, this whole site is protected by law. But because this site, this part of the site here, had never been plowed, the owner can't plow it. Even though it's got medieval ridge and furrow here, there's an Iron Age site here. This landowner, because he'd plowed it before, he can plow it. Now, that's taken 100 years to negotiate just that much. It's a nonsense that half the site can be plowed and yet the whole site is protected. Uh, so even in somewhere like Britain where we've been trying to protect things for 100 years, there are lots of difficulties. So one of the questions we asked uh, early on in the project was where are the significant infrastructure projects in any of the countries and because we had worked in Jordan before we asked them in Jordan where are the significant infrastructure projects that we could do a record in advance of a, a, say a road being built and they said ah well we're building a ring road around Madaba now Madaba is a really important archaeological city it has a long long heritage and uh, very very important throughout prehistory, history, and the modern period. So we were able to do a rapid survey within the green area, um, 141 sites, and 11 of those sites directly affected by the ring road. As a result of that, the Department of Antiquities are doing a survey looking at those 11 sites to see whether they can do more records before they're destroyed, or whether they can move the road, whether they can find out the significance. And that's, we think, how we, our information should be used. Um, even in somewhere like Jordan, where they have uh, strong antiquities law, there are sites like this, protected sites. Uh, you can see this is a Roman reservoir here. This is an early Islamic caravanserai. It's part of a complex of three of them. You can see massive bulldozing here. But you can also see an olive farm. And then we, we went back. This was taken in 1998. We went back one year later, 
just to do another record. And there's the reservoir, but where's the... It's gone completely. And that's a site that's protected. It's on the it's on Jadis, on the archaeological record. It's on Mega Jordan, um, but completely destroyed, partly through lack of knowledge. The landowner probably didn't know, and the bulldozer driver certainly didn't know. But had there been a fence around it or a sign or some recognition that it was there, that site would probably have been uh, saved for the nation. The good thing about what we're doing is that we're also finding sites that are in perfect condition. We know very little about what these sites are. We've called them pendants and keyhole structures. When you see archaeologists use terms like that, you know that they haven't a clue what they're talking about because it's describing what the site looks like, but we don't know whether they're burials, we don't know whether they're hunting sites, are these kite sites. We have absolutely no idea. But those sites are in perfect condition. So those are the sorts of sites we should be saying, let's try and preserve those for future generations. Uh, examples in the eastern desert of Egypt. This is a Roman fort in 2010. Uh, you can see the fort here on a slight promontory. There was a French team working there and they uh, went back one year, here we are in 2013, to see that there'd been a massive bulldozer uh, trench here and going out here. Further investigation revealed that the local people seen, had seen archaeologists working there, had made the assumption that archaeologists look for treasure and look for gold, therefore there was gold there, therefore it was worth hiring a huge great bulldozer to go and find gold. Uh, you don't find gold by looking at a bulldozer, you don't find gold on a Roman site, but nonetheless uh, the site was damaged and destroyed. So we have a huge educational problem as well to overcome in trying to make sure people understand that just because archaeologists are there, we're not looking for treasure. Uh, an example here worth, um, we've already heard this morning about the number of sites and the number of artifacts but, uh, that, that are looted from sites, and here's a project, again, uh, through the Chicago Oriental Institute and Morad Kersal, follow the POTS project in uh, FIFA in southern Jordan, and over 3,000 Bronze Age burials, and we flew around the site again very recently in September, and I was heartened to see, by looking at it uh, more, that there are areas where the looting has stopped, and there are, there are still parts of, of the site which haven't been touched. But all of these, all the holes you can see on these two slides are as a result of looting uh, and illicit excavation. Apart from a few here, which were done by the Department of Antiquities, to be able to do proper excavation, because they knew if they didn't do it, it would be too late, and we wouldn't know anything about that Bronze Age cemetery. Um, this is a site that will be familiar to many of you, uh, and it was really just to make the point of how significant it can be to have this uh, aerial photograph, a mosaic of photographs taken by Sir Orlstein of Hatra in the 1930s, to be able to compare it with the modern satellite imagery uh, here uh, taken in 2015 uh, to show the changes that have taken place uh, since then anyway through excavation, road building, everything else, but also to look in detail to see how much damage so-called ISIS did when they got into the center of it. Um, and I hesitate to say that actually they obviously didn't know about the, the rest of it, so it's in relatively good condition despite what has already happened to it. But I hear from others that there's a French team now looking in more detail at Hatra. Uh, so it's useful to monitor it as well. 
There's a very good website on Syria, monuments of Syria, and although we've looked at Syria in great detail, we've, we've focused our attention to those places that haven't been surveyed already. So the reason for putting this up is that through the Monuments of Syria website and Ross Burns, he's looking in detail at places like Palmyra and Aleppo. So those are places we wouldn't spend a lot of time looking at because other people are doing it. Um, and I did mention I would show the tower tombs. There's one of the tower tombs that was destroyed uh, by ISIS. But I also want to mention Jura Europus in Syria. That's an aerial photograph taken in the 30s through the Yale University excavations. Uh, that's a satellite image in December 2011 uh, where, apart from the work of archaeologists, it's relatively untouched. There it is in April 2014, and the contrast, all the holes that you can see there, that is systematic looting on a massive scale. What we don't know is where the artifacts are that have come out of that. The trade doesn't... We, and, and if any of you have got more information, we'd be really, really grateful to hear. Um, but it is industrial-scale looting, but we don't know where the artifacts are coming out. We then commissioned some satellite imagery um, to look at it in detail so we can understand it better. Um, and when we commissioned this, which was in December 2015, they said, because of the priorities of other people wanting satellite imagery in Syria, you won't get it until June 2016. But luckily enough, on Christmas Day, December 2015, no one else wanted the satellite imagery, so we were able to get very, very detailed uh, information from that. Um, so what, what can we do? The future and the end game. What more can we do as archaeologists in the current situation? Uh, we need to understand more about looting and trafficking. Uh, there is a trafficking culture website, which is very, very important, run by a project from Glasgow University, uh, but that's now come to an end, and one of the archaeologists working there was Dr. Neil Brodie, and he's joined our project as of September 2015. So um, all the information that Neil has and all the experiences has, we will be able to um, help him more and he'll help be able to help us more understand looting. One of the things he has discovered is that although the artifacts, the bigger artifacts don't seem to be appearing uh, for sale in the West, coins, especially Syrian coins, are now appearing in some numbers because they're easier to transfer and move. So is it the case that some of the artifacts that have been looted are sitting in people's warehouses, in people's storerooms, waiting to be able to be sold uh, in the future, and I don't know the answer to that. What more can we do? The UK government is looking to ratify the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Property. Um, it's taken them since 1954. I believe tomorrow is going to be the second reading of the bill. I just heard on uh, social media. So the UK Parliament should ratify that very, very soon, which is very important. Uh, from various uh, organizations I've worked for, uh, they come up with this thing, the heritage cycle, which you can probably see better on here, um, which gives an understanding of, of where are we in the cycle. And I would say we're in the understanding stage here, but if you, and, and the importance of this cycle is that if you can understand the heritage, which is what we're trying to do, then you might value it. And the value can be any number of values. It can be social value, it can be experiential value, it can be economic value. But if you value it, you're going to care for it. And if you care for it, you'll enjoy it. We all enjoy visiting archaeological sites. But then by that, you then want to understand more about it. And then you will understand it more and you will value it more. And that's quite a good, uh, useful key. But it also uh, highlights to me that without the local community, 
wherever that might be, and I've just chosen one example here. This is Bert de Vries um, working in Jordan at a site called Um El Jamal. He's worked there for 46 years. So the, the journey we're engaged in, and we see the endangered archaeology one being the beginning of that journey, is a very long journey. And Bert, even though he's been there 46 years, and this huge site of Um El Jamal, uh, which has everything from prehistoric right up to uh, 10th, 11th, 12th century, even so, there are people who will loot and do illicit excavations right under his nose. So you can never, ever give up um, and, and, and keep, you have to keep monitoring the situation. We also think that, we, that it's important to prepare for the future. Um, rebuilding is important, but the rebuilding has an impact itself. More damage can be done by rebuilding after a period of conflict or even after a period of damage, whatever the cause of damage, the rebuilding can do more damage than the original uh, agent of destruction. So we have to be wary of that. But we, we believe that creating a record and assessing the threat is very important, but it is also important to stress that that's about helping protection, but we can't save everything. And as archaeologists, we should be very aware of that. Um, and it's not, we used to have a phrase in Britain called preservation by record. I would say it's not preservation by record, it's, it's recording the destruction so that at least we know something's happened. You can't pretend that you're preserving something because you've made a record of it, whether it's a digital record or whatever it might be, or a drawing or whatever else. That is just a record. And the, the difference with the cultural heritage and the natural heritage is it is possible in the natural world to recreate habitats. And one of the reasons the cultural heritage is important is that once it's destroyed, it's destroyed forever. We can, we can do a replica, we can do a model, but you can never re recreate a thousand years of history. It's impossible. And that's why, to me, it's very important. So we're, we're looking towards creating what we now refer to as historic environment records to help whichever country feels they want help to be able to help them create their national historic environment record. Very important that we do training. We've already spent two days here. We could spend two months here quite easily doing the training. Um, to train people in our methodology probably takes a year or more from start to finish if they have no experience. Monitoring the archaeological sites is very important. Whether you do that using satellite imagery, drones, helicopters, or airplanes, or just by visiting on the ground. The difficulty by using field surveys, it's 20 times more expensive in terms of time and person effort than it is to be able to use either satellite imageries or even helicopters. Uh, here's just an example of training. Um, I forgot to bring the, the, the 3D glasses. This is from a training course we did in Jordan in 2009. So unfortunately, I forgot to bring the 3D glasses to embarrass all the students that were here in the last two days. But we will be back. Um, and here's the training course that was taking place uh, in the other building here uh, and the team uh, doing the training for uh, students of the University of Sulaymaniyah and the American University as well. Um, and this is my final slide, uh, just to say if you have any questions, uh, that's where you can find us, that's where you can find me. We have a Facebook page as well. Thank you very much.